In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're continuing today in Christ's parables on the kingdom. I'd like to begin by giving a quick summary of the parable before us, and then loop back out to hopefully show how this parable, as all parables, collides with our own conceptions of the world and demands some kind of response. Again, in this parable, the kingdom works like a farm. Farmer Jesus goes out and sows the seed of his kingdom into the soil of the world. The seed he plants grows up into the children of his kingdom. But his enemy has come and sown weeds in amongst the wheat. These weeds grow up into the children of this enemy, the evil one. The hired hands of farmer Jesus realize what's going on, and they ask him, first, how this evil thing could have happened, and second, if he wants them to deal with it. But farmer Jesus simply says, an enemy did this, and no. A few things to notice. First, the kingdom of God is, as we saw last week, pervasive. It's present, but it's hidden from view. It is sowed throughout the world with prodigality. We, like the disciples, tend to think of this as a parable of the weeds, but it is fundamentally a parable about the seed of the kingdom being sown throughout the world. Which makes it even more interesting, given our obsession with the weeds at the cost of ignoring the wheat, Jesus is not even particularly interested in helping us satisfy our curiosities, about how a good and powerful God could allow a world where evil things happen. An enemy did this is all the explanation we'll get. But notice, the enemy has no power over the wheat. The weeds he plants is meant to mimic the wheat, to cause confusion and to provoke us into making what would prove to be a fatal error. This is an important point, and one we return to time and again here because of how easy it is to get it wrong. God is not the author of evil. He is the creator of all things. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there's everything else. That everything else is contingent upon God. God is contingent upon no one and no thing. God's enemy, the devil, does not have the power of creation, only destruction. But even that is limited. He is utterly unable to destroy the wheat crop that farmer Jesus has planted, so he opts for confusion in an attempt to get the servants of the farmer to make rash decisions. The farmer, of course, takes a surprising tact. If you guys go in there all excited to tear out the weeds, you're going to end up damaging the wheat, which is exactly what the enemy wants, so we'll wait. Jesus calls his followers to have patience. As Stanley Hauerwas says, we have all the time in the world to be the church, and so the church is to be patient even with the devil. This is probably one of the most difficult and increasingly underapplied teachings of Jesus, and it could not be more timely for us right now. The modern era is marked by an ironic sense of moral clarity. We all tend to assume that progress is real, that human life is and will continue to get better and better. Our medicines and machinery, computers and communication technology will continue to advance us into enlightenment. All that's required is that we attain the vision of moral purity given us by our postmodern cultural architects. Ours is an era of ideology, and ideology is a jealous and costly mistress. There is no sacrifice too great to be offered up on the altar of ideology. This is why our sense of moral clarity is ironic. It It is exactly because we think we see things clearly that we then rush to enact the purgation necessary to attain ideological purity. Historians estimate that in the course of the 20th century, 170 million people were cruelly and violently killed by state governments, 
many by their own government. We're not talking about a guy in a rage who exploded and killed someone. We're talking about people who wear pinstripe suits and eat at fancy restaurants for business lunches, premeditating and carrying out mass murder. We are living in the most violent and destructive times in all of human history. This destruction has been carried out in the name of ideological purity. We call it progress, but it is nothing short of demonic. We're currently living in a moral panic, and it would be funny if the consequences weren't so devastating that the people screaming the loudest right now about the sins of history seem utterly unaware that they are engaging in the exact same prideful puritanical destructiveness as the people they are so keen on denigrating. Do you hear the devil laughing in the screams of our current cultural upheaval? He's bent us toward evil and then convinced us that our only chance at salvation is for us to, surprise, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and become the arbiters of moral purity who will eradicate evil at any cost. Don't take the bait. It's not that we who have entered into the mysteries of Christ through baptism can't or shouldn't speak with moral conviction about what it means to be a human being in his world. Quite the opposite. Our witness to the crucified Christ in this world necessarily involves a thick moral vision of what it means to be a person. But bearing witness isn't a program for eradication of evil. We live in a world that has been laced with evil, and we live in a world that has become completely impatient. Our impulse is almost always to settle our own scores, to make things right even if it takes violence. That impulse could not be more contradictory to the parable of Christ. And I don't just mean the parable of the wheat and the weeds, I mean the parable, the dark utterance that is Christ's very existence. The scandal of the Incarnation is the scandal of the crucifixion. Christ enters the world that he might become the world's victim. The only one who actually did see with absolute moral clarity completely refused to set up purity parties and re-education camps. Instead, he lived a life of patience and forbearance. And we are called to be people of patience and forbearance. Patience requires humility and hope. Part of the illumination that is given to us in our baptism into Christ is the ability to recognize that we do not see with moral clarity, that our hands, palsied by sin, are unable to excise the evil from our world, from our own selves, without causing further destruction. Humility gives us patience because it causes us to realize that it's more than a good idea. It is absolutely necessary that we wait and let God sort out right and wrong, good and evil, sheep and goats. There is an immense freedom in that humility, and it's a a humility that is wrapped up with hope. And this is where Christ's parable and St. Paul's letter to the Romans begin to converge. The only way to live with this kind of patience in the midst of a world laced with evil is to have an unshakable hope that this, the here and now, isn't the most real thing that exists. This is what it means to be eschatological people. It is to recognize that the world as it exists is in bondage to decay. It's to recognize that this is so because an enemy has done this, and it's to hold deep in our bones the faith and hope that God is bringing about new life, freedom, and adoption. To live in this way is not easy, 
because it provokes the hostility of the world. You really think the cosmic sky fairies will make everything right in some magical future? What a waste of time. Let's get to work tearing up the weeds. The patience of the church is not a thumb-twiddling, Netflix-and-chill, checked-out situation. It's not a lack of work. It's a reorientation of it. Rather than go about the work of weed eradication, our primary work becomes the work of prayer and a witness in love toward every person we encounter. A witness to the love and mercy of Jesus Christ, He who is, who alone can judge rightly, for his very essence is love.